Corporate Unplugged opens the door to a world of people transforming business. They share their dreams, their experiences, and what they would never give up. I'm so glad to have Niklas Bergman here with me in Stockholm. Welcome to my podcast, Niklas. Thank you. Good to be here. Actually, welcome to my office because we're in my place right now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> a fantastic place. Great lunch place and a great atmosphere. Thanks. And as a short intro, Niklas Bergman has spent the last 25 years working as an entrepreneur and a technology investor, mostly focusing on investments and business development in emerging markets, instrumentation, nanotechnology, computing, new materials and new media art. And today he does this through 15 direct and indirect investments. A couple of years ago, he uh, cleared his schedule and embarked on a journey to understand where technology is taking us and if we are ready for the upcoming tech storm. And now he's dividing his time between technology investments, uh, a couple of his own projects, and he's also writing and speaking all over the world on the future of technology and business. So Niklas, what made you clear that schedule and um, dive deeper into tech and where it's taking us? I really enjoy science, innovation, technology, and the creative side of that and actually trying to make business of it. But after having done that for 15 plus years something, then you tend to do less of the innovation, the creative parts, and more and more of finance and the admin and all these endless meetings with bankers and lawyers and auditors and whatever it is. And I, I really did not enjoy that anymore. 10, 15 years ago, I really enjoyed the, the board meetings and, and all these things. And now I realize that that's not what the fun part is. That's not where the actual decisions are being made. That's not where you can make any difference for a company, actually. So uh, that, that's one of the reasons. Another was that on a personal level, we had our third kid. My mother-in-law passed away in 2012. So we struggled quite a lot there. And those things in combination, actually, I felt that, okay, I need to change the way I do, the way I work and what, where I spend my time. So that, that's actually the, the main two reasons. And, uh, and then it takes you a while to do that. I think it was the fall of... 2015, where I just realized that my, my calendar was empty, no one called me, and I was just, 5% of me was really stressed out by that, and then I, the other 95% was so happy. So, yeah, it's been a couple of years. Excitement. And that's where typically some kind of a transformation happens within you when you have that total freedom. Yeah, actually. If you actually, see it as no, excitement. Yeah, yeah. Technology, I mean, is, of course, is the strongest driver of change today. So, obviously, we must understand you know, how it's changing business from the ground up. But so, what, what, what are the biggest, you could say, misunderstandings out there that needs to be resolved? And what is it that companies and maybe leaders today don't understand about tech and business? One of the main challenges for any executive is to let the guard down, to venture into the unknown, realize that, accept the fact that we will not be sitting with all information needed to make a decision. Uh, that uncertainty, I think, people are still fighting that uncertainty quite a lot. And I think instead you should just accept the fact that 
you will never have full information. Instead, try to see ways of making decisions in an uncertain environment with limited information, making decisions that can be based on not all information, but maybe slightly more information that the competition has. So I think that that's one thing that I meet a lot when I when I meet with senior executives in any organization, in any industry, actually. Second thing is that they quite often actually think, oh, we'll just wait and see. We don't need to do this right now. We'll just wait and see. Give it a six months, give it a year or something. Then this, this is probably just a trend and will fade out. And that's also, I think, really a bad idea. Instead, you should be curious about these things. You should be curious about what's happening in any sector, in any, any part of the world outside of your bubble that your organization, company, or world is. And, and to see how, I mean, all the different trends that are happening. I, I tend to be more specifically involved in, in technology and innovation from obvious reasons, but also outside of that, you need to be a bit curious. And when it comes to tech innovation, you need to be curious, open-minded, take all these things in, but also be a bit skeptical. Realize that there's a scientist, an innovator, there's an entrepreneur, there's a big company, there's politicians trying to sell you their view of the world, trying to sell you these gadgets. So be curious about that, be open-minded, but make sure that it's your own decision, what you should take in, and deploy in your organization, for example. So be curious and a bit skeptic. I think that's, uh, for me, that's the main, main issue. And even if um, companies and leaders are following closely various trends and trying to dig deeper and understand and even maybe, you know, go to advisors such as yourself or others to understand the depth of it, who can help them to kind of translate it into their own business? Or is that purely something that they must somehow do themselves to understand? You can always get consultants on board to do your analysis. And I think that's fine because you need to get the experts on board. But I think the best thing to do is to create an internal mindset around these things. To realize that, okay, this is what we do. To realize that we need to be informed about these things. To make sure that your senior executives, all mid-level managers, at least have some kind of interest about the outside world. Take things in, go to a conference, read a book, talk to someone, listen to the radio, read a book, whatever it is. You take something new in about technology, about innovation, and then you realize that you read something there, you hear something from another source, and then try to connect these things. And then once you've identified this innovation or this field of technology, then you can get the experts on board. Say, okay, what's happening there? How should we react to this mm-hmm. for the analysis? But then, of course, when, when it comes to implementation, that has to be a sort of a core competency in, in the organization. Mm-hmm. Same thing there. Of course, you can get advisors on board that helps you with that. But still, it's your own responsibility as an executive to make sure that things happen. And seven months ago, you um, published uh, the book, Navigating the Tech Storm, the business impact of technology beyond the hype on uh, how to deal with new technologies from a business perspective. So who, who would you say is, this book is for and what is it for? I mean, urged by a friend of mine, 2006, 2007, he said, Nicholas, you've got to go do keynotes about what you've done in, in business slash technology. Didn't happen then. It took another 10 years before I started doing that. And when I started speaking, 
an advisor of mine say, well, Nicholas, you, you have to have a book. So I started writing, actually. And this is the, now the second edition of that book just, just came out. But what I wanted to write was, was a practical guide, a handbook, providing tools for understanding the technology landscape and how it will affect your business. Uh, so it's, it's a three-way process. You, you need to analyze technologies to see what's out there, what the trends are, and analyze the, the time perspective. When is it happening? You need to assess the business implications, how it will affect your, your industry, your customers, your company. And then you need to adapt to that new reality. You need to find new ways of how to lead people, how to organize your work. You need to look at sustainability, the ethical perspectives on a new innovation, on new technology. And you need to relate to uncertainty in a new way. So that three-way process, analyze tech, assess the implications and adapt to that new reality. And I really thought that, because that, that was what I set out to do, was try to describe how I had been working with technology and business for the past 20 years. And I really thought that it was uh, established companies, large industries, that was my main audience. But I've actually come to understand now that also, I mean, yes, industry, of course, traditional established companies, but also the startup world, where many of them also... They're in the, on the border between tech and business. I've seen a lot of people from the investment community, both venture capital, private equity, wealth management companies, individuals. I see it. And that was maybe the biggest surprise also from the public sector, politicians, policymakers, people working in, in uh, large governmental organizations to see how, because part of the book is also more on a general level, what kind of tech do we see and how, how will it affect society? So that, that was a bit of a surprise for me, but equally fun because uh, I think society is not really ready for what's coming. We have people in general have no clue about how tech will transform society and business in the next 10, 20, 30 years. So we need to talk about that. So if we can get politicians on board and get them to be informed and be curious about the future there. Uh, I think we that's absolutely necessary. And uh, what do you think are the, uh, just to exemplify a couple of trends that you find most kind of intriguing and exciting? There's loads of them in your book. Uh, right now? But like right now, you know, what do you think is the most intriguing and maybe perhaps for people not expected? Well, if you take the expected ones that everyone is talking about now, of course, it's, it's climate change and, and uh, new uh, energy solutions, solar, wind, these different things. Everyone is talking about AI, artificial intelligence right now. In my world, having spent almost 20 years as an investor, I see this thing coming back and back again when everyone is, is running in the same direction. 20 years ago, it was the internet, the World Wide Web in general, where investments were going to be made. Then it was uh, clean tech, then everyone went mobile, then it's been gaming, it's been virtual reality, now it's AI. I think there was, it was just a month ago something, was a report published that said that out of all artificial intelligence startups in Europe, only 40% are actually having some kind of AI component in their offering. Meaning that it's lipstick on a pig. People just put that label on because it makes it easier to attract customers and venture capital, more or less. And I, we've seen that before. So short-term, 
AI, for example, it's a complete bubble, totally. It's a lot harder to implement an AI project than mobile, for example. It's an order of magnitude harder, more difficult, because you need to involve a whole lot more people. You need to take your best people from operations to include them in an, in an AI implementation project because you need their expertise to train the, the algorithms, for example. So short term, it's, it's very much a bubble. Long term, I think there's amazing things that can be done in machine learning and automation, artificial intelligence, if we call that. But that, that's like the obvious ones. IoT, Internet of Things, I mean, there's, there's all these different. One that I think has tremendous opportunity that people rarely talk about is the things that's happening in nanotechnology, new materials. And that is, is fascinating because it's more of the general purpose technology, an enabling technology that is, is behind many, many other breakthroughs that we're seeing. Today you have nanotechnology coding on your car on different surfaces. We have nanomaterials that are very, very efficient in transporting medicine, for example, in, in your body, in your smartphone, in your laptop, in your recording device here on this table. We have nanotechnology that is a necessity to actually manufacture and develop and manufacture these processors that we have in, in all electronic gadgets today. So nanotechnology is everywhere there, and it's, but it's just in its infancy. We're going to see some amazing things coming out of the field of nanotechnology, if we call it that, in the next coming years here. It's a lot more complicated, less understandable than, for example, mobile devices or gaming or virtual reality or these things. Uh, meaning that we need another set of entrepreneurs, you need another set of investors to actually be able to understand and, and to invest and develop applications in these areas. But it's, when I look into nanotechnology, which I've, I've been involved in the field for 20 years, and now we actually start seeing some really, really interesting progress there. And then also, of course, the combination between these different technologies. The, I mean, what we see now in, in, a, in an era where IT as the fifth technological wave is maturing, we have IT everywhere, smartphones, computers, embedded systems everywhere. So IT in general is an established technology, meaning that we have all these different new technologies coming. And in, in that shift, and we've seen that, several times during the, the industrialization in the late 18th century. But when we see that is that cross-pollination between technology fields is actually where the most interesting things are happening. When we saw it, when we went from the steam engine to electricity, when we went from electricity and then the factory systems and the uh, Fordist mass production to IT, in all these shifts we see this. And, and the cross-pollination today is between, of course, IT, new ver ways of using information technology, artificial intelligence is one of them. Uh, so you see IT, nanotechnology, neurotechnology, biotechnology, these four fields, popularly you can call them bank technologies as in bits, atoms, neurons, and genes. Mm -hmm. And combining these technologies, using IT to understand the human brain, uh, using AI machine learning and eventually quantum computing to design new medicines, for example, mm -hmm. using uh, nanotechnology to improve cognitive functionality, 
using nanotechnology to create faster computers. I mean, these, the, the intersection here, the cross-pollination, that is, is where, we, where I see a lot of interesting things happening. Still in its infancy, but definitely something to look out for in the future. Yeah, there's a special one in terms of for the security and privacy technologies that maybe is, I was thinking is worth mentioning extra because it's a new trend. I do a top 10 list every quarter on, on the technologies that everyone is talking about. Mm-hmm. And there's been a lot of talk about security and privacy lately. And it's actually in two perspectives. I put it into one category. Maybe that's a bit crude, but still. I mean, one is privacy. Mm-hmm. What Facebook, Google are doing in, in online surveillance of you, what you do, your online footprint. Mm-hmm. What companies like Amazon are doing when they listen into all your conversations in your home. Mm-hmm. And it's actually interesting because, I mean, you, you got companies like Facebook, Google, and actually also Amazon. They make a lot of money from advertising for Facebook and Google, it's their number one or more or less only source of revenue. For Amazon, it's not the only one, but still Amazon. I think they will have a projection this year of selling $12 billion worth of advertising. So it's kind of a big player. I mean, and imagine for Amazon, if they, they know what you buy, they know where you live, they know a lot of demographic details about you, meaning that it's, it's a perfect ad medium. And I mean, rest assured that if you have a company making money selling ads, they want to know as much as possible about you. It's fine, you can stay on Facebook, but just be aware of the fact that that's what they actually do. So that's the, the online privacy, privacy in general on an individual level. And then we can connect that to China and the social credit score, that system they are developing there, CCTV surveillance, a lot of that in the UK, for example, the US is also doing that. All countries are doing that, more or less. That, that's one side. The other side is on a more geopolitical level. How are nations working with this? How are they looking into this? Automated uh, weapon systems. With that, we mean weapons that can be fired without human intervention. Weapons that are automated and make their own decisions in when and where and how and at what they will open fire. And that is a really scary development, I think. And that's also interesting because we have different views of that in different parts of the world. I think we are quite reluctant of doing that in Sweden, for example. But take another side, in, in China, they, uh, they launched, I think, this spring or last fall, a graduate program for uh, autonomous weapons development at one of the largest universities, meaning that they look at it in a totally different way. Of course, it's easy for Sweden to say, well, since we're 10 million people, it's difficult to have any geopolitical ambitions. But if you're several hundred millions or even a billion people, of course, you can have other ambitions. You need to fill those ambitions and fuel them from somewhere. But so it's both on a personal level, on a more geopolitical level that we see, uh, we see this. And then, of course, cyber warfare, what we saw in the U.S. election, what we've seen... Um, computer viruses directed to the centrifuges in, in um, Iranian nuclear program, the Stuxnet bot. I mean, on one hand, it's fascinating. On the other hand, it, it's really scary it's what's actually it's happening it's there. But I, I think we just need to be aware of that these, these things are happening. Mm-hmm. That you need to be aware that you leave a lot of trace when you're online. Mm-hmm. It's sort of easy to actually understand and follow what you do. 
where I think awareness, as I said again, curiosity and a sound bit of skepticism. I think that's that's a good way to start. Have you changed uh, some parts of your life or your behavior and so on because of this? Yes. Like yes. I was on a business trip in China a bit more than a year ago. I had a stopover in Beijing before I, I took a domestic flight. And after I have a, I don't know, 5, 10, 15, 20 minutes, something in, in the airport lounge, mm -hmm. my email was hijacked. So it was closed down for three days. So after that, I always use, uh, I, I should have done that a lot earlier, of course, but I always use a VPN, virtual private network system mm -hmm. when I'm on any Wi-Fi, actually. I'm a lot more sensitive and careful when it comes to my password today. And I also use this hardware encryption that I plug into my computer. Mm -hmm. So yes, I've definitely changed my behavior in that. And when it comes to privacy and social media, I sort of let go of Facebook, for example, because I just, just waste of time. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's me. I don't have any good, interesting friends, or maybe I'm boring. I don't know. But for me, it's, it was just sanity check because it's so easy to just scroll down your feed and look at all these usually quite meaningless stuff that's out there. So, Do you use anything else? Instagram or something for sharing? Uh, yes, I'm, I'm slightly more active on, Inst on Instagram than Facebook, but that's not hard since I don't do anything on Facebook anymore. Through my keynotes and lectures, I get a lot of people contacting me over LinkedIn, also for my investments. So that I'm relatively active on LinkedIn. And then I use Twitter a lot for newsfeed, my own newsfeed. I think for me, Twitter is really good. If I can curate my feed and curate the people I follow or the news channels, news sources I follow, for me, that, that's a really good way of staying on, on top of things and understand what's happening around me. Yeah, it's, it, maybe it's more Twitter than anyone, any else, actually. What would you say is your um, passion? And then I mean, you know, something that is truly, truly important to you so that even if you need to suffer for it, you will do it because you want to see it grow or develop. On a personal level, I think it has a lot to do with skiing, uh, but that's a different story. Mm. Uh, I've suffered a lot skiing. <laughs> well, that's because that's probably because I'm not like I'm, I'm not I'm not as good as I think I am. Uh, <laughs> but when it comes to business, I've always been driven by curiosity. So uh, working with these innovations, working with being part of early stage companies, starting companies, investing in early stage companies, there's a lot of joy in that. There's a lot of amazing things that you experience. On the other hand, it's equally frustrating sometimes. It takes longer than you expect. It's more expensive than you expect. And I've been in situations where it's really, really stressful. Really. So, uh, but still, I'm still doing it. So, uh, I mean, that's uh, either I never learn or on the other hand, probably it's... I mean, it's a balance of, of good and bad, of course, but I, I really think that the, it's more good than bad, definitely. Especially when you're part of something that turns out to be good, either as, as a, an serving at the sidelines, but you're promoting it and supporting it, or you're an active part of something that turns out to be good. Then it's, it's really, really rewarding, I think. What, what is an example of that for you? Well... I mean, as an entrepreneur, I was part of starting a company in my family where we uh, 
took care of everything Volvo in Romania starting in 1990. And the timing there was perfect. So we managed to, to build that in, in something really interesting. We started from scratch, of course. There was nothing in Romania. They, did, they didn't have commercial law in 1990 when we started. There was no law of ownership, nothing. So it was really uh, an uncharted territory as a business in that sense. Hyperinflation, all these different things. Surveillance, coming back to that. My situation where we actually knew that they were listening into all our phone conversations and that. We talked to the people that actually installed the surveillance systems in our office because then they were really open with it. But that, that's a different story. But being part of that, that we actually managed to grow from zero to a 300 million euro turnover in 16 years. That was an amazing journey. Just, I mean, one, on the one hand, to be part of that organization, see the company grow. And on the other hand, be in that country that totally changed in those 16 years. And that's just an amazing journey. Yes, so that, that's one example. Where is that company now? Now it's Romania and... In 2006, uh, Volvo acquired that business. So we still have some business, some ongoing business in Eastern Europe, but not that much involved with Volvo anymore. Are there any, what you would call, transformational points in your life when, when you look back that, that happened made you choose certain roads? Well, yes. I mean, if we only talk about transformational in that sense, that has to do with my so-called career or where things took me. Mm -hmm. I mean, when the Berlin Wall came down and they executed Ceausescu in Romania and we were asked by Volvo to actually build their presence in Romania in 1990, that was, of course, one transformational point there. In the year 2000, I bumped into an old friend on the train, which meant that we ended up working with the technology investments together for, for, for quite a short while, actually. But then I continued doing it by myself and with other people. So that was also sort of a serendipity thing in that. And then, of course, for three, four, five years ago, something when I finally come out of that and now have a different balance in what I actually do. Being able to both, with one, one part of me working in with early stage investments and the other part where I actually have the ability and opportunity to close the door, turn off the phone and actually do some thinking. Travel a lot, meet with a lot of interesting people. I think last year I went to like a dozen different startup hubs around the world. And not only the obvious one like London or and, and Silicon Valley, but also Bangalore, Shenzhen, Ljubljana, Bratislava, Paris, I mean, Stockholm, of course. Uh, but all these, where you get a different perspective than only like seeing the obvious ones. That, that's, I mean, that's a great opportunity. I really, I really enjoy that now. And uh, were there any unexpected kind of things that you realized during one of those trips? Maybe that's a bit depressing, but it's actually more or less the same. <laughs> no, we, I mean, we, we live in a globalized world. So when you visit like an incubator in Paris or visit an incubator in Shenzhen, you realize that they work on roughly the same problems because they have the same tools. Everyone is, I mean, of course, there's some geographical and cultural differences, but they identify the same market opportunities. Then it can be, of course, if you're in Silicon Valley and meet with a micro nano satellite startup, or you look at 
SpaceX now or Amazon that wants to launch hundreds or thousands of small communication satellites to spread the internet in rural areas or in all areas. Uh, if you meet with a similar company in India, they have a slightly different goal where they see that, okay, we could do this cheap, totally different mindset, and we could provide internet access to people out in the in the countryside. So they have a maybe a different, they segment the market in a different way, but it's actually still roughly the same thing. Or uh, I met with a really interesting company in Shenzhen that was working on... Uh, robotic toys for kids, educational robotic toys. Really cool thing, unique, but there's a lot of other companies working with educational robotic toys for kids uh, in other parts of the world. And I've seen many of those in the last year or so. But it's just, uh, I can really appreciate the cultural nuances in, in, in the offering and how it looks and all that. But is there any place where you so maybe a bigger interest in, okay, how can we use this latest technology and the technology solutions that we will develop for something truly important, not just, okay, let's, you know, capture another market or, or you know, just expand the number of, of products and services we offer, but like driven by the fact that what are we actually solving? Mm -hmm. What are we actually resolving? Is there anywhere you found that to be more present? Well, I, th I think we see clean tech companies in all these different hubs. I, that, that, I mean, that was my impression. What might be a difference is that in the slightly more developed economies that's been doing this for, for longer, I, I can't say that we are more developed than in China nowadays, but we've been doing this longer. Then I can see that we've sometimes you have more companies actually doing, working with... Um, social entrepreneurship, impact investments, where you, yes, you want to make money, but you also want to do good. And that I can see more in, in Sweden, in Paris, in London, New York, in, in San Francisco, than I maybe saw in, in Bangalore, in Ljubljana, or, or in Shenzhen, for example. Not that they don't care. It's just that you have a slightly different view on that, a slightly different mindset. And also maybe some of them can also have the luxury in certain parts of their countries or continents almost <laughs> to kind of do the right thing from the beginning. They don't have to reshape what is. And, no. Uh, they can no. like do it the right exactly. from the beginning. Exactly. But if you would assume that you really have all doors open to you and all kinds of resources available mm. to you, is there like anything you would immediately rush to innovate or change you know whether it is in your environment or something outside i think what, what i've seen in the last couple of years in uh in biotechnology this crispr technology where you can cut and paste in your genomes there's a lot of things that you can do there when it comes to uh, to crops to food to food supply something that was extremely difficult and challenging just a couple of years ago is starting to become kind of a low-hanging fruit, relatively speaking. I, can't, I shouldn't say it's easy, but relatively speaking, it's less complicated than it used to. And I think there's a lot of opportunities there, interesting challenges for any innovator, researcher, also entrepreneur, with a very interesting impact if you get it, if you get it right. So I think that, that's one area that 
where I, given what you say, unlimited resources, unlimited possibilities and that, I think that that would be an interesting area. Another two would be anything that has to do with space, maybe not colonizing Mars, but anything apart from that, and uh, quantum computing. But that, that's, that's for the next podcast, maybe. And why? Why the space, for example? Why? Just because it's personally intriguing? Or well, I, I've, always, I've always loved science fiction. Uh, and there are, there's a lot of money involved. Cost, still costs a lot of money to do something in space. But there are also endless opportunities if you, if you get it right there. Part of me feels it's like a scary, a scary direction. But oh, yeah, I mean, yes. You put your trust in, mm. actually put your life in the hands of engineers when you do that. Mm. It sort of works out, usually, not always. Is there like one piece of advice that you, if you have, always have the opportunity to speak to leaders, however you define those, that you want to give to them? I mean, it goes, goes with what I said before that, Yes, we need, you need to be curious, open-minded. Don't let anyone else tell you what to do. And once you find something that fuels your curiosity or that you see as an opportunity, start deploying it with a limited scope and, and take that limited risk and see what happens. That, that would be the short version of that. Is there any company that you want to point at as a good example of this? Yes, there are. It's just boring to... Pick the obvious ones, <laughs> unfortunately. Perhaps one of your, the company you invest in. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, still kind of small companies. I think that when it comes to curiosity and maybe not always being the first one to do something, but seeing the opportunity, taking a technology in, perfecting it, improving it, and also launching, launching it in, in a sort of ecosystem that works that apple is a great example of that not always or very rarely the first company to do something but when they do it they do it with this sort of finesse that actually makes it stick and i think many other large tech companies especially in the u.s and china nowadays are good at that google are experimenting a lot which in all respect for that but still i think more than what is at least somewhere between 90-95% of the revenues are still advertising So, but they have some really interesting things going on there. Uh, more established companies, I think what's happening in the, in, in the auto industry is interesting. I think finally many of these companies have realized that it's going to change tremendously in the coming years and decades. I think Tesla woke them up. Tesla should have credit for that. We'll see what happens with Tesla. We're not sure about that yet. I think the jury is still out there, but the car industry that I still follow quite closely and work with a bit, I, I see some really interesting things going on there. And, and although many of these companies are big and slow, I, I see some interesting examples of how they actually try out with new innovations, new technologies, but also new business models. And that is fascinating in such large organizations. And it's actually a fact that technology and innovation are usually now, you see, pushing the development of new business models as well. Technology is one of the greatest factors changing existing business models. That we, we see that a lot now. Which is great. The only, I think, scary part is that sometimes when you talk to companies and so on, they 
everybody's talking about digitalization and digitization and they don't even have uh, you know the a joint um, definition of what that is you know no. everybody has their own uh, version of what that means and uh, everybody's just kind of running and trying to go with the flow but actually they don't know where they're heading with it for their business true uh, I'm thinking of 100 leaders out there. How many do profoundly understand the potential that we that you intend, and and um, how do you discover that if you are an employee or a customer or a shareholder in that company? How do you know? Who knows? And and it is like buzzwords as anything else. Mm-hmm. I mean, this this chat we've had here today is filled with buzzwords: empowerment, curiosity, digitization, artificial intelligence. Yeah, those are buzzwords that has. Definitely have has, has some relevance, but you have to use it in the right context, and you have to fill it with something meaningful. Mm-hmm. I got the, maybe the best feedback I've received from from a workshop I did with a small group of board members and share people in, in large Swedish companies. After two hours, this lady said, "I'm so happy, Nicholas, because we've talked about technology and business for two hours, and you haven't mentioned digitization one time." <laughs> And I find that, I mean, that's interesting. I didn't think that much about it, but she, because she's been in so many situations in the last couple of years where got all these consultants trying to sell digital products or projects to her. I, I think digital is highly relevant. The fact is we've, we've been doing, working with digitization for the past couple of decades, and now suddenly exactly. everyone talks about it. But in my perspective, it's only the warm-up. We need to get a good warm-up from digital. But then, as I, I mentioned earlier, combining digital with nanotechnology, neurotechnology, biotechnology, then we're going to see some true transformation going on. That's going to be really, really amazing, for good and for bad. But we're going to see a totally different society emerging in the next couple of decades when we live longer, when we have more access to, uh, to new materials, to better medication, and our understanding of the human brain will increase significantly or exponentially. So all these things combined will give us a new mindset and a new society coming out. And that, that is going to be a challenge for anyone, for all of us. It's going to be a challenge to uh, the whole democratic system that we have today. What's going to happen to our pensions when we live significantly longer than we do today, for example? So all these things are challenging, meaning that we need to talk about it. We need to discuss these things and understand how we should cope with them. We need to decide how we should deploy and use a new innovation. Because that's a, a lot of a one-way street. If you go down a road and, and accept to use a technology in a certain way, then it's really hard to prohibit it and go back after that. So we need to discuss these things thoroughly. Exactly. What what is it to be used for? Because otherwise we are driven by technology without really having yeah. a scope of you know yeah. how does this serve you and me and humanity, right? Yeah, exactly. That, like, where is the definition for that? Rather mm-hmm. than just run after the. And actually, I mean that that's what I, I say. You should be curious and a bit skeptic. You should not let anyone else decide how you should use a new innovation. Mm-hmm. That should be your own decision because there. Take any innovation, any technology, and it's, it's quite neutral until you find an application and start using it. Then it can be f- for something really good. But then you, you add some money, some power, uh, some greed to that, and, and you can start turning it into something ugly, actually. 
And if we um, go back, let's say, 15 or so years ago, is there any particular advice you would have given to yourself? Is Be a bit less naive. <laughs> uh, <Why>? In general. <laughs> Don't fall in love with your projects because that's... Uh, all the things that I work with, I have some kind of fascination for, meaning that you fall in love with it. And if it doesn't evolve as planned, you should let go. And I sometimes don't do that. That's, that's a challenge. And then also, I should have quit all the boards a lot earlier and work with the companies sort of as I do today, but in a different way. Rarely in a startup. The board can be important, but the board work is, is a lot of waste of time, I think. Uh, interact with the companies you invest in and work with it, work with them in a different way, actually. I'm not sure I would have listened but <laughs> 15 years ago, but that's what I would say. But sometimes when uh, I've heard other people saying quite recently, actually, that uh, they're somehow you know, looked, at, uh, looked upon as if they're naive, and actually it has, proven, uh, has been proven that they were not naive, it's just that the majority was thinking in a different way. Uh, it doesn't not necessarily mean that that was the right or the wrong reason. No, that's true. That's true. And, and I can also say that being naive might be a good trait sometimes. Maybe I don't want to take all, all of that away, but maybe a bit more grounded in reality sometimes. And at the same time, we need people who, who can believe in something that is... You know, that's why when, you talk, when we talk about visionary people, I mean, what is actually vision? Vision is really to be able to think... Uh, almost the unthinkable, whatever is impossible today, right? And mm -hmm. you need to, in that sense, is that naive? No, it's just, it's really a, yeah. a, a strong yeah. Uh, yeah. conviction about, mm -hmm. and also the ability, sometimes people say that if you are able to think the unthinkable, it means that you probably might get there. Mm -hmm. No, exactly. Uh, and someone said, it's not supposed to be easy because it, if it was easy, someone else would have done it already. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's that's another way of putting it. The final question I have is a big helicopter one is, is what, do you, what do you think the world needs most at this time? I think we see a lot of, there's been a change in the past decade or half decade or so mm -hmm. that a lot more hostility. We are afraid of, of change, afraid of different opinions. Everyone has to work with, work with that, to, to be a bit more open-minded, accept different opinions not say that it, it's that's your fact, not mine. I think it's really important, both like in an entrepreneurial startup investor or corporate setting, that we should allow different opinions and a, an interested, interesting heated discussion around things and then come to a conclusion. We get more and more into our filter bubbles. We tend to close out things that we don't accept, agree with uh, because it makes life a, a bit easier. Yeah, now it's easier than ever. Yeah, and I, and I think, again, open up, be open-minded about things, accept different opinions, listen to, talk to, visit, read about, read opinions from people that you don't agree with, because I think that's, that's an important way of actually broadening your perspective, broadening your mind. Do you believe that uh, companies are probably the best instrument we have today to make good change? Yes, because uh, there's a lack of alternatives, for, um, for good and for bad. I don't think that, that capitalism is a perfect system, 
but I haven't seen any better systems so far. I'd be more than happy to adapt to, to another system, but none of the other systems have been working. It has a lot of flaws, but I, I still think that it's, um, we have to work with what we have today. I agree in terms of at least the original version of capitalism. Now it has maybe become sometimes, uh, you know, more of, more of a bastardized. <laughs> yes, of course, of course. And then on the other hand, we, we start seeing corporate social responsibility. We see the social impact entrepreneurs, the, the investments being made with, with a social cause where you want to make money, but you also want to do good. So within the, the capitalist system, we actually start seeing interesting things happening where people take a lot more responsibility than they did just 10 years ago. Thank you, Niklas. Thanks for sharing. Uh, and uh, to find out more, uh, should people head, head to your uh, website, right? NiklasBergman.com or... NiklasBergman.com. There's a few entryways. NavigatingTheTechStorm.com works as well, okay. uh, where they can get some more info on my book and download some material. This top 10 list that I publish frequently. Mm. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. You'll find uh, links and uh, show notes on corporateunplugged.com. Remember to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and Acast and share this episode with the people you know would benefit from hearing this. If you like what you've heard, please rate and review this podcast in your podcast player of choice because it helps the show to grow, reach more listeners, and have impact. Thanks for listening and until next time, live with purpose and remember to unplug. Mm -hmm. Ciao.